You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. The time has come for America to hear the truth. We are going to stand with them, and not only are we going to fight for their rights, but we're going to stand up for our rights here in our state, in our homes, and in our community. Labor's rights in the United States of America is not going to be decided in the courts. It's not going to be decided in Congress. It's not going to be decided on talk radio. And it sure is not going to be decided on Fox News. You better listen, my brother, because if you do, you can hear. Dear friends, welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Network series highlighting the work of our members. The growing network of over 80 shows in five countries serves as a one-stop shop for audiences looking for labor content and as a resource for labor broadcasters, podcasters, and content producers. My name is Evan Papp, and I produce Empathy Media Lab's podcast on labor, political economy, arts, and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with David Story, who is the co-host of the Valley Labor Report, which airs on WVNN 92.5 FM in Huntsville, Alabama, and on WGOL 920 AM in Russellville, Alabama, with the goal of educating the audience about the power they have through organizing and solidarity. David is also the president of the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama with the world's most experienced rocket builders with more than 120 consecutive launches and 100% mission success rate, whose workers bring the most utmost precision, passion, and purpose to one of the most technically complex, critical American needs, affordable, reliable access to space. David, very cool and very glad to have you on. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and what got you interested in organized labor? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, you kind of surprised me there. You've done a little bit of research on the, all the work that we do. So my members will be happy to hear that. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll start from the beginning. I, I grew up uh, in a blue collar uh, working class family uh, and neighborhood in uh, Decatur, Alabama. Um, my, 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 Great grandfather was a machinist uh, with the, I think it was LNN Railroad in uh, in the early 1900s in Decatur, right at right at the beginning of when they were laying track and things like that. Um, my grandmother was a president of her union and a, and a staunch supporter of uh, organized labor for as long as I can remember. Uh, and my dad was a steel worker. Uh, well, he started out as a paper worker in, in uh, the paperwork and industry, and then uh, they merged with the steel workers later on. And uh, he, was, he served as vice president in his union and on the negotiating committee, uh, numerous other things, uh, representing membership there. Uh, my, his sister, my aunt, uh, was a uh, Alabama State Employees Association member working for the state of Alabama in the mental health industry. So, uh, you know, the I've grew up around, which is, you know, 
unheard of or, or outside of Alabama, most people think it's unheard of uh, to grow up in that, that uh, history of uh, the labor movement in our state. So uh, my, my great, my, my grandfather had actually went to uh, Flint during the, you know, during the automotive boom, him and him and one of his neighbors had went up there uh, and went to work at the Ford dealership up or the Ford factory up there. And during then, the uh, 1930s? Yeah, yeah. The, so they saw the Flint sit-down strike and... Well, you know, he died before I was ever born. Actually, he died. He died at like 37, I think. So my dad was just like a... So I don't know a whole lot of history. Uh, I would like to think maybe he was involved in that, but for certain, you know, he was up there around that time. Uh, and, 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 and it very well could have been that that's kind of what brought uh, our family that type of uh, labor history was him going up there and being around that and kind of coming back home with that. Uh, so, yeah. And uh, so my dad was a paper worker and that was like, probably the best job in for certain North Alabama and probably within a four or 500 mile radius. Uh, people would come from Georgia, from Tennessee and from Mississippi to work at this factory because it was extremely well paid, uh, good benefits in the whole nine yards. And so I kind of grew up thinking uh, if I could get on at that factory, then I would, you know, I'd be set because, I mean, we weren't rich by no stretch of the imagination, but, you know, unlike a lot of the other people in our area, it was, uh, we were very well off and, you know, fortunate to, for him to have that job. Uh, so, so as, I guess as a young kid at 16, uh, got my first car and started, uh, you know, thinking about uh, dating and things like that. So I had to get a job, of course. Uh, Dad wasn't going to pay my way, and you know, but he also said, look, you know, whatever you do, you need to work union. You, you're, you're all, I mean, it was just ingrained in us. You always got to work union. And so one of the neighbors down the street, he actually went to church with us at the time. Uh, he drove, I, I think, it was like a mid seventies Chevrolet Camaro. I mean, you know, for a 16 year old kid, that was a nice car. Uh, but, and, but he was a butcher, uh, in, in, in a, in a grocery store. And I mean, he, they, they had actually a nicer house. They had like a two story, just gorgeous house. And I thought, well, he's a union butcher. So I'm going to go to work at the grocery store with UFCW. And, and, and so I went to work, uh, sacking groceries at 16 with USCW. Uh, I worked there. And that's the about, United Food Commercial Workers for yeah, United, yeah, exactly. outside the, the lingo. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I mean, we may we may be bringing in listeners that that aren't uh, aren't well versed in uh, in the union talk. Uh, so I worked there. I uh, my senior year. Uh, I had, I'd been going, they do a trade school here. So you can, like in high school, you can actually go because I was a terrible student. Uh, 
So I mean, anybody that knows me knows. So so dad was like, you got to get a trade. You're never going to make it in college. You're never going to really uh, excel in the business community. So I was like, okay, they got this this, kind of like a cooperative trade school to where you go to high school for half the day, then you go to trade school for the other half of the day. And I had a buddy that was a machinist. And so I was like, well, that seems like a pretty cool job. So I went to trade school and then I'd done well enough in, 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 in school that the instructor had some job openings through uh, some friends that he knew in, in, at one of the local machine shops. And so he recommended me go over there after school. And so I would, I would go to school for the first half of the day and then I'd go to work at this machine shop on second shift for the, for the rest of the night and then get off at 11 o'clock, come home, do the whole thing over again. It was terrible. I, I, I graduated with my machinist certificate and I respect any machinist that's out there that may be watching, but uh, standing in front of a lathe or a mill all day and and making these parts uh, for eight hours, I mean, I enjoyed the work, but it was, uh, it was I think I, I probably have ADHD or something because I can't sit still for that long in one spot. And I was just like, not going to make it here. Uh, so I graduated, kind of kept on doing that work, just completely burnt out. And I finally said, as a lot of uh, teenagers or young gentlemen do around, around this area, I was like, Atlanta's the place for me to be. I need to go to Atlanta, the big city, uh, sow some wild oats. And so I went over there for about a year. Uh, just completely, completely broke, completely destitute after about a year. I won't even go into everything that was going on over there, but I came back home kind of with my tail between my legs and thought, uh, I think I was around 22 at the time, and I called dad on the way before I left home. There wasn't cell phones at the time. (laughs) I was like, yeah, I'm coming home. And, 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 you know, Luckily, my dad's very, very kind hearted, gracious person. He didn't rub it in. He was just like, all right, well, the door's open. We'll see you whenever you get here. So I got home and he says, well, you got to get a job. Got to start job shopping. Well, it's funny the way these things tie back in together because my grandfather that went to Flint with his neighbor, he, he came home and actually started a pool hall. And he had enough money, and that's kind of what he'd done while he was back home. But this neighbor that went with him, he came back home and went to work in the aluminum factory, Fruhoff. Uh, they make uh, 18-wheeler trailers. Lucky enough, uh, I had grew up with his grandson. We had went to school together. And so uh, I called him, and I said, hey, can you help me out? And bam, within less than a week. He had, he had a job. He was like, we got some machinist openings at Fruhoff. Show, and it was on, it was on night shift. They worked seven at night, seven in the morning. Show up with your toolbox and I'll introduce you to everybody. And I was like, cool. 
nice union job there too. I mean, it was, it was real good. Uh, so I show up the first night, roll my toolbox in, and there's these two older gentlemen. I, and you got to remember, I'm in my twenties, long hair, uh, just, just absolutely worthless kid. But uh, so I, I roll my toolbox in there, and they're, they look at me, and I kind of walk up to them, and I'm going to speak to them, and maybe I spoke to them, but you know they acted like like I was a ghost, like they had never seen me in their life, didn't want anything to do with me. I was like, well, I can see how this is gonna go. So I kind of pushed my toolbox over to the side and started walking around the plant, just looking. And it, maybe an hour or so later, my grandfather's buddy, he comes in and says, well, we don't have any more machinist jobs open. Uh, and you know, as is the case during these times in a union factory, the workers were at the factory. I mean, they're, you know, they, if, 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 if they didn't like you, then you weren't going to fly. He's like, we got, we have an, uh, some openings in electrical apprentice. If you want to apprentice as an electrician, I'm like, I'll just, I'll do whatever it takes, you know? And so that kind of got my start into, into the electrical field. And from there kind of, I finished my apprenticeship with them and become a journeyman and went to work uh, in General Motors plants, programming the robotics and things like that. Well, as luck would have it, that was about the time NAFTA came into effect. All the jobs started going down to Mexico and I had a choice of uh, look for another job or I can start trying taking equipment down there and installing it and training the workers in Mexico. So I went to Monterey, Mexico for about three years. Uh, where, and I would come back home, you know, it wasn't three years solid, but uh, off and on for three years and uh, train the workers down there. But the great thing was while I was down there, there was actually UAW organizers in the parking lots every evening trying to organize those workers. So I would get, I, I had the end and I would get all the pamphlets and flyers and things like that, and stick them in my briefcase and go in and then help organize the workers in there with them as I was inside the plant. So, you know, it, it, it kind of worked out uh, for them. I, I don't, I, I don't believe the plant has ever been organized, but you know, I would love to, you know, in the future, work with you to connect with some of those folks. I'm sure you still have some connections. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just kind of get the lay of the land. So, but yeah, sorry. Yeah, well, it, no, uh, yeah, I'd be more, I'd love to. And and, and, it, and the bad thing is they need, they really need it. While I was working down there, uh, it wasn't in the cell that I was, when I say cell, it's like there's these big fences with the robotics inside that are moving blocks and heads and things like that to different equipment. But in the cell next to me, uh, it was running production as I was installing everything. And one of the workers, and thank God I wasn't there to see it. I had actually went to lunch at the time, but one of the workers, the robot came in and it was waiting to put, I think it was a, an aluminum cast block into the machine and it stopped. And, you know, it's unfortunate but it speaks a lot to the amount of training that union workers have. He, did, he, he didn't understand the concept of what that robot was waiting on, but it was waiting on a couple of uh, 
clamps, for lack of a better word, to open up so the block could go in. But he had knew he had taken a stick several times in the past when that had happened, it would poke on that, that fixture and the robot would come in. Well, he took the stick and poked from my understanding. It didn't go in, so he kind of reached over there to grab it. And when he did, it came in and, and killed him, you know, and it's, it speaks to the work that they do and the, and the exploitation that they have down in, that they, the companies get away with in Mexico. There's a line of probably 50 to 75 workers sitting out on the concrete uh, uh, walkway in front of the plant, just waiting on somebody to, to either die or get injured and get taken out on a stretcher. And they would just go out there and pick one uh, and bring them back in. So, you know, it's, uh, it's a terrible situation at the area. But uh, so, yeah, I'd done that for a little while. And then uh, I can't, I, while I was having to travel. So I was looking for a job while I was doing that and wound up coming to my present uh, employer uh, building rockets and how I ended up in that. I have no clue. Just uh, luck of the draw. I was looking for union jobs and that one come open. And so, so yeah, been with so them for about 15 years. NASA strategically moved uh, sites in many different places with um, both launching and I think in production as well. Was that a part of it or what's kind of the history of the plant uh, or like the aerospace <laughs> within Northern Alabama? Yeah, well, it's a funny history. Uh, what, what it was was a unity busting attempt. The history was initially the rockets were being built in California uh, and it was machinist jobs there. Uh, and they, they shut the entire plant down and outsourced it to Alabama. We've kind of always said the running joke in Alabama is we're the last stop to Mexico. I mean, we're the most, uh, you know, us in Mississippi are probably the most exploited workforce, workforce in America. And so I think that they thought that if they could get it somewhere down south in a right to work state, you know, in more of a rural area that they could free themselves of, of uh, you know, the worker collectivism and it didn't work out for them. Uh, they built the plant, uh, I think in 99, they built the plant, maybe they started building it in 98. We came online in 99 and within a year, we had organized with the, with the same machinist union, just a different local but the same machinist union that was representing the workers out there. And, 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 and you know, it benefited the company some because the, the wages when they brought it down here were cut in half. So it's taken uh, several, it took several years to get those wages and benefits back up to where they are now. But now there's, we still have a small uh, workforce that's in Vandenberg and a small workforce that's in Cape Canaveral that actually launch and uh, they're still a little bit more paid, but it's more like a regional difference. Uh, they're, they're roughly three to four dollars an hour uh, at a higher hourly rate than we are. So it worked out and uh, we're very pleased that, uh, you know, to be, to be in a right to work state in the state of Alabama where people don't have to pay dues, they get the same pay as the guy working next to them that does or the gal that's working next to them. And 
we still run between 93 and 95% union density means, you know, 93% of those people are actually union members. I think it says a lot about what the machinist union has done and does, you know, for, for the workers, because if they didn't see a benefit, they wouldn't pay dues. Yeah. I think enough, not enough people know about strategic industries, about capital goods productions, about the machine tool sector, and even space technology. You invest in that, you learn that yeah. technology, it can then come back and improve all other technologies. So like, for instance, the Apollo program, you know, for every $1 that was invested in it, we had a, a 10 over $10 return on that investment. A lot of people uh, have grown up in a post-industrial society where they haven't seen production. And a lot of people in high positions of policymaking don't understand the importance of the strategic importance of the machine tool sector and the capital goods sector. When it's, when we're, it's an unhealthy economy when we're at 70% consumer spending. You want, you want most yeah. of the money being made through capital goods and then that's also would help with our trade imbalance if we lead on a lot of these sectors. So it, it, it's something that I would love to, to get a little deeper into in, in, a, in a subsequent uh, interview. Yeah, 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 and and you, I mean you're absolutely right. You know, a lot of people think that that private industry creates a lot of these, uh, a lot of the things that we enjoy today. And the fact is, most of the things that we enjoy today was created in the public uh, environment. You know, the internet being, you know, one that's famously created by the military. You know, for so yeah, and 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 also the fact that in space is regardless of what you think about space exploration, space in general is the next, uh, if we're not there, there's going to be a serious detriment to the national security because uh, that's where the next wars will be fought, will be that, you know, you hear people talk about the wars being fought online. Well, they're fought online, but they're fought through satellites that's in space. So yeah, it not only, uh, benefits the nation as far as technological wise goes it's also a national security investment as well absolutely so to talk about your show why did you want to start it and what was the process because other people may be interested in starting their own show and what is it about yeah so our show uh i don't know that i really wanted to start it uh it was one of these things to where Jacob had, Jacob is my co-host. So, and you've already interviewed him done. It is a great show. If I, I need to plug that because if you're watching this and you hadn't watched the show uh, with you and Jacob, then you definitely need to check that out. Uh, but he's a fellow AFGE member, American Federation of Government Employees. And he had hit me up a couple of years previous, he was wanting to do a radio show, but he was wanting to do more of a liberal uh, polit politics radio show. And he wanted to know if our local would be interested in, you know, purchasing commercials and things like that. And I knew it wouldn't fly because I have a fairly conservative local. Um, they were not going to be interested in investing in a liberal talk show. But I said, you know what, as a favor, I will take it back to them and we'll get a vote on it. And it got shot down unanimously. 
And so the, the time went on and uh, I was running several organizing campaigns in the area. And I was, and, and it was right before COVID hit. And I was like, I have no way of communicating with these people uh, other than through text message and things like that. And, and then it kind of come back up it, in my mind. And I was like, this radio show that Jacob was talking about, I wonder if I can convince him that we need to do a labor oriented radio show. And so I picked up the phone and pitched it to him. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm down for whatever. And so it just kind of, I guess it, it, he planted the seed and, and then it just kind of organically grew. And then we, we started thinking about, well, okay, we can, everybody's doing podcasts, everybody's doing YouTube, but we wanted a way to communicate with people in the community uh, that may not, and that does not hear what we are saying every day. Uh, so we, we picked the most conservative right-wing radio show in the market. It's also one of the biggest, I think it is actually the biggest uh, radio station in the, in the North Alabama market. And uh, we talked to him and, and the, the program manager was like, yeah, I don't care if you pay us, uh, we'll take your money and I don't care what your politics are. And we was like, well, great. That works out perfect because I think the people that are listening to the show will actually care what our politics are and will actually care about how we feel like you can improve your lives, you know, in a substantial way. And so, uh, yeah, so we, we, we've been on the air for, uh, uh, in May, it will be one year and it's, it's been, it's been strange. It's been great, but it's been a challenge because neither one of us, uh, you know, are media experts or communications experts or, so we had to do a lot of learning real quick. And the show was, uh, it was, it wasn't bad, but it was pretty terrible early on. Uh, and it, and it, it, depending on how much I talk, it still can go pretty terrible, pretty quick. Jacob is very polished. And I'm kind of uh, just fly by the seat of my tech pants style. So, but yeah, that's, that's kind of our show. And we're just talking, uh, you know, labor unions for an hour and a half on Saturday mornings. And, and then, and, and the response has been overwhelmingly pretty positive. You know, we have uh, one of the ones that Jacob likes to talk about is the guy that called in a, a six weeks or so ago and, uh, and we put him on the air. I had, I, I had no clue what he was wanting to talk about, but uh, he said uh, something to the effect of, I hate y'all's politics. It's terrible. But what do I have to do to get a union in my workplace? And so, and, and we got off the air. It was like, well, it's working, you know? Yeah. And, you know, this is, from my understanding, the network radio station that Sean Hannity started at. Yeah, actually, yeah, he was, uh, he got his start here at WVNN. Uh, it, that was back when it was at a, an AM station, I think in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, but yeah, he, he was, he, that was the first talk show that he done was on, on our station. So yeah, it's been ultra, it's ultra conservative. It's the same station that plays Rush Limbaugh, uh, 
what is some others? This, what is the Weasley guy? He, he's from California and now he's moved to Tennessee. I can't, oh, Ben Shapiro, yeah. Ben Shapiro, all of these crazy right-wing uh, lunatics are on there. Uh, and I, and I'm, it's, that's, this is probably the worst part is I've never listened to this stuff in my life. I just refuse to listen to this type of media, but I've started listening to it more now that we're on that station. And I'm amazed that anybody can believe half of what they say or 90% of what they say, but yeah, it's an ultra conservative station. And you get call-ins, which is awesome. And you also produce it and put it on YouTube and you cut, cut up clips with headlines like, why telling someone to get a new job instead of unionizing is dumb and wrong. Or another one, caller shares anecdotes about how unions are bad, gets destroyed. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's just, I think it goes back to having this dialogue, which these, the social media in some ways is really good at getting the message out there, but also I mean, it's been shown to, you know, we're talking oftentimes to our own, our own people, you know, and to get the most clicks and uh, the video the yeah. station, you know, is, is on the, the airwaves for everyone. So it's, it's really great, the work that you're doing. Yeah, well, and I think the, the, the radio station, I think, appeals to more my age group. Uh, and so, you know, you've got 35 and older listening to conservative talk radio, but then the social media aspect as far as Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and things like that more appeals to Jacob's age group, which is pretty well, in my opinion, a perfect blend because he's able to convert a lot of those things that we do on the radio and transfer them to social media and put these catchy uh, uh, bylines on top of it. And, and yeah, it's worked out real well, worked out real well. Yeah, you guys are a great combination and uh, you really play off each other and everyone should definitely take a look at look at your show. And as a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, uh, we're constantly trying to expand it to new people who are interested in doing labor podcasts or who already have a labor podcast. How did you hear about it and why do you think this network is important? Mm. Uh yeah, well, actually, I think it was a sister, Tanya Hutchins, that was a member early on that I think reached out to y'all or she reached out to me, one or the other. She had knew about our show and was very supportive of it. And, and she does, she produces like the, the machinist, um, a lot of the videos, the very professional quality uh video and things like that yeah, activate live activate live is one of them but there's so many more that that the general public don't see that we get to see i mean it's it's really professional but so she had reached out to us it was like uh check out the network and you know everybody at the network you and 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 just chris and everyone was just wonderfully receptive uh of, of bringing us in but uh you know i think it's important for us to for us to tell our story and you know it's, it's the problem is that what i see is is and and jacob is emblematic of it but also my children and really everybody's children is that our stories in organized labor has been and i don't know i i, I don't know if it's on purpose or or what but 
it's not told in the history books. It's rarely told on TV uh, or in media or really in any place because, because you know, you've got just a few corporations that own 90% of uh, media, the media that we, that we digest, whether it be TV or radio or anything like that. And so it's important for us to tell our story through our eyes. So the children coming up and, and, and the people that we're working with side by side hear what we're doing. Uh, you know, most, most Jacob, Jacob speaks about when he graduated high school, he had no clue what a union was, you know, he, and, or what they had done or the accomplishments that's been made, you know, as far as like, uh, Blair Mountain and the, the U.S. Army actually killing people or, you know, um, the Haymarket affair in Chicago where, where, you know, where several labor activists actually wound up being executed over a, a, a ginned up trial. Uh, but those are the things that were fighting that for was, an eight hour workday. Exactly. That's what I was about to say. That's fighting for our eight hour workday. But it's not told in school. It's not, it's, it's, it's it's, it, it seems to me there's an ulterior motive and the ulterior motive is don't let anyone know that they actually have any power. And that's kind of why we skew more towards organized labor than a political talk show, because I'm of the opinion that there's more power and solidarity among all of us workers than there is trying to seek help through government agencies, government programs, or any politician. Not to say that, there, that there's not some politicians that does wonderful work, but it, I think it's incumbent on us to build power at the grassroots level prior. And, and I think history speaks to that when you go back and look, for example, FDR is a, a good example. Uh, he gets the credit for a lot of the New Deal programs, but the fact is, at the time, the CIO was the ones that endorsed him, and they and and if you go back and read history on that, they basically say there's no way he could have got elected without the CIO's help. The strikes in his presidency increased from roughly it was in the thousands nationwide to over 4,000 by the third year of his presidency. And it was a pressure on workers that, that they put on the government that forced his hand. So it was kind of a capitulation. Uh, and so that's kind of where we try to bring it back to the politics is fine. Everybody can talk politics, but we've talked politics for the last 40 years and it kind of goes back and forth and, and really, the average worker, the folks that I'm surrounded by on a day-to-day -day basis. We've went through, you know, eight years of Barack Obama, prior to that, eight years of George W. Bush, uh, four years of Trump. And and there's, and don't get me wrong, there's some fine details that are terrible in, in, in all the administrations, but overall, it didn't help or hurt the working class people that I, that I see every day so we kind of say keep your politics we will work on the power building power at the local level so but to 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 go back to that i think that's important 
because we've moved, and that's the reason the network's so important, because we've moved so far away into corporate media or talking about strictly politics that no one, very few people in America, your average people, understand the power of collective bargaining, the power of you know solidarity, and, and all of us coming together to work for one cause. We've, they've been beat over the head with individualism for so long that they think that they're the only ones that can do it. And if I can't do it, I'm a failure. And that's the worst, worst concept to have because when we come together as a community, uh, then anything's possible. I mean, we put a man on the moon for God's sake. And it, it's always shown in history that it is the collective organization yeah. of, of workers that can be the only vanguard against oligarchical ruling class power. Mm -hmm. And you have to force them to give up concessions. This is what it's always been. It's a bloody history. And sometimes, you know, there's a lot of fallen and, and battles that have been lost. But those people have continued to help with us continuing the fight, keeping the flame alive. And we're not going to see any utopian paradise in our lifetime or maybe ever, because there's always going to be this tension of someone wanting to exploit another. But it's always, it, it's so factual and truthful uh, that organizing in unions is the uh, purest form of democracy in a lot of ways. The, the yeah, yeah. Having a voice in the workplace that then you organize enough to then have a policy that makes sure that all the workers are, you know, given their due of the fruits of their labor as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and, and, and it also, if, if you go back, not just the fruits of their labor, because if you look at something that is never covered, and we try to cover it on the show, it's also the social justice aspect of that. Uh, you know, the inclusion and the fact that uh, when, when Martin Luther King wrote his I Have a Dream speech, it was done in an office in Detroit that UAW had provided him. And, and, when, and when he come down to protest in Selma in our state, in my state, I'll say, and was arrested along with 800 other people, it was a president of UAW at the time that raised $160,000 to bail all of them out of jail. So, you know, that, that history of not just bettering ourselves, but also bettering our community and bringing the community together and inclusion uh, and, and, and racial inclusion, whether it be, you know, uh, race or sex or sexual preference. That is something that, that the, I feel like the, the labor movement never gets any credit for. And they're at the forefront of it every day. So, there, you know, there's more to it than just the monetary aspect. There's also that social inclusion aspect. So in closing, looking into the future of organized labor, where do you see opportunity and hope? Uh, my hope, and it's cliche, my hope is with the next generation because I'm 50, I'm getting ready to kind of hand the reins over to the next group. And that's one of the reasons why I've been so, uh, so particular about working with younger people such as Jacob, because they're going to have to lead this next fight. But uh, I see hope in that generation more so than what I did in mine, because although I grew up in a union family, um, most of the people that I lived around didn't. 
and and they were just like Jacob. They had no clue. But I see more progressive movements among young people today with the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, you know, at being one. With with like my children that that are big Bernie Sanders fans. And that was unheard of in the 80s during the Reagan era. And so, or for example, when they're rolling guillotines out in front of Jeff Bezos' house because they're demanding better wages and better working conditions, which is what we seen just a few months ago. And the yellow vest movements in France, you know, I see hope in, in to me, and I'm more of a radical. I don't, a lot of the conservative unionists don't care much for my thinking, but I see hope in the streets. And because that's where we've always won our battles prior, were in the streets. They weren't won in political offices. They weren't won in our homes trying to talk one-on-one to people. They were won because people got mad. They took to the streets and they demanded action. And, and we're beginning to see that, that social movement and labor movement fed up with all the crap that they've been fed the last 40 years, this neoliberal policies, and, and they're taken to the streets and I'm cheering them on. I'm a little bit too old, even though I did go to the Black Lives Matter rally uh, that we sponsored through the, through the, oh, and speaking of which, we actually, I'll, I'll give a plug to the show. We actually streamed that live, the labor, organized labor for Black Lives movement uh, six, seven months ago. So you can go back on our channel and watch that. But I went to that. But, you know, even the week prior to that, the police in Huntsville were shooting people with rubber bullets and tear gassing them, uh, you know, peaceful protesters. So we're seeing the same thing, history's repeating itself with Dr. King, uh, and with Eugene Debs, and all of these people that's came before us. So this gives me hope that we're on the precedent of seeing some serious change. We've just got to keep agitating, you know, as we always say on our show, to agitate, educate, inoculate, and organize. my brother because if you do you can hear their voices still calling from across the years and they're crying across the ocean they're crying across the land and they will until we all come to understand none of us are free none of us are free says it's right we got to feel for each other let our brothers know we're here got to get the message send it out all loud and clear none of us are free none of us 